Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Uh, why don't we open our Bibles to James chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. <clears throat> I'll read those for us and then we'll hop into it. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, is dead. Interesting passage. It's going to be very similar to the message from two weeks ago. I just changed the two few words. No, I'm just kidding. I... Uh, the title that I'm going to go with is A Dead Faith Does Nothing, But a Living Faith Does Something. And uh, I did not come up with that myself. I came up with it with the help from the youth group when we did this a few weeks ago. This is the lesson that we learned uh, from this passage. It's very simple. A dead faith does nothing, but a living faith does something. Now, is there anyone here who loves to be repeatedly told what to do? Anybody here? You know that three-letter word that we use called nag? Um, How many of us love... To be nagged. Youth group guys, how many times do you hear, clean your room, do your homework, please brush your teeth once this week. None of us really like to hear this over and over and over again. And yet it, it seems to me that James is beating a dead horse. Because here's the context. In the first chapter, <clears throat> James said, listen. Don't just listen to the word, but do the word. 
And then he goes on and says, you know what? To know whether or not you have a worthless faith or a faith that is pure and undefiled, we'll see it in how you live. We'll see it in the way that you control your tongue. We'll see it in the way that you take care of orphans and widows who are helpless and have no hope. We'll see it in the way you live out your faith. And then he hops into chapter 2, which wasn't chapter 2 when he wrote the letter, but the next part of his letter. And he says, listen, don't show favoritism. When the rich guy comes in, don't put him in a place of honor. In the meantime, while the poor guy comes in and you put him in a place in a sense of dishonor, you put him in a place where he's out of the way, where no one can see him. Show mercy. This royal law of love is showing mercy. It is showing no favoritism, no partiality. And now again, he is telling us to take care of those people who are in need of mercy, who are helpless and are hopeless. As it says here in verse 14, one good, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. What James here is basically saying is carrying along this theme of mercy and taking care of people in needs is that some person has come into church and they don't look good. They don't look all nice and neat. In fact, their clothes are a little bit shabby and they look a little bit gaunt. They're, they're a little bit hungry. They haven't been eating well. And, and if you can kind of picture this, if you know, on a normal Sunday when I'm not preaching, I'm out there and I'm greeting people. But if you can imagine someone coming into the church and uh, they've got holes in their clothes and they've been struggling financially, um, their unemployment benefits have run out, they can't find a job, and they're walking in with their family and I come up to them and I greet them and I say, hey, how are you? And they go, oh man, we're having a really hard time. Uh, you know, we haven't been able to buy clothes for school. We don't have the backpacks and the stuff that we need for school and we really haven't been eating well because we can't afford it. And I go, oh man. That is horrible. That is a terrible situation that you're in. Let's gather the elders around. So all the elders come around and we get in this big huddle and we begin to pray for them. We're like, oh God, you are the God of provision. Oh God, you love this family so much. Oh God, you're just great and mighty and you care so much. And we pray that you give them clothes to wear. And we pray that you give them food to eat. Hallelujah, God, you are the provider. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And I turn to them and I go, feel better? Good, because now let's go worship, okay? And don't meet their needs. That's what James is attacking. He says, how can you do that? That doesn't make sense. How can you say to someone who is poor and struggling, go, be well clothed, be well fed, and then turn around and go back to your life and not meet the physical needs. He's basically saying it's a dead faith. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. That was a dead prayer. It doesn't matter how good it was. It doesn't matter if everyone was inspired or touched by that prayer. That does not matter at all if there is no action that follows after it. Now, if I am poor and I'm in the same situation as they are and I cannot meet their needs, that's understandable. But it's me and I am not poor. I may not be the richest guy, but I am not poor. I am obviously well-fed, right? And without my wife, right, I might be a little less well-dressed, but I am well-dressed. 
Some of you might say, well, you know, not as well just as you could be, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. So you know that I can meet their needs in some way, shape, or form for me to simply pray for them and do nothing about their difficult situation. It says a lot about my faith. And it says that it is dead. That's what James is trying to say. Now, the problem here is that as we read through this whole passage, people think to themselves, wait a minute. James is saying that I have to have works in order to be saved, but didn't Paul say, and doesn't this church believe that we don't need that stuff in order to be saved? And I'm not going to go through the whole thing because one of the things that I learned this week is I'm reading through the text. And if you start out with like verse 16 and you go all the way to verse 19, is there are six, at least six different interpretations of who isn't speaking here. Now, I could sit here and tell you here's, you know, one is James, one is the opponent of James, one is an ally of James, one is an opponent of the opponent, and, and on and on and on. That does not matter because I think in the end what really matters is that James is not saying, he's not saying that in order to be saved, you must do works. That would be a contradiction to what Paul saying if that's what he was saying, but he's not saying that at all. Paul says this, not being saved by works is the beginning of faith. James is saying we are saved for works, which is the expression of faith. So, Paul rightly says we are not saved by works. That is, before you become a follower of Christ, you can do whatever you want. Good things, bad things, whatever it is. None of that matters in a sense, sociologically, yes, it does. But in, in the eyes of God, it doesn't matter because all that really matters is you get to that place where you acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior. So those good things, nada, don't mean a thing till you become a Christian. James then takes that up and says, if you claim, as it says in verse 14, if any man claims to have faith, is you must have action. There must be deeds that follow after that. You can't say, I am a Christian, Pray, be warm, and be fed, and then go your way without meeting that need. Something must happen. A living faith does something. A dead faith does nothing. Try to picture it this way. For the normal family, for the normal family, and I hope my family is normal, although I'm a part of it, which makes it a little bit abnormal, but for the normal family, you do not have to tell me, love your wife. You don't have to come up and say, dude, love your wife. No, because I do love my wife. Now, you may have to tell me some ways to be able to do that well, but you don't have to tell me to love my wife. You don't have to come up to me and say, listen, as a father, love your children. That's easy. I can do that. Now, sometimes they might feel loved because I'm grumpy or I'm ornery or whatever it is, but they know, hopefully, that it is not hard for me to love them. I just do. That's it. And so James is saying, listen, if you really have faith, if you really believe in God, then an automatic expression of that faith leads you to do something. If I look at my kids and say, hey, you know what? I love you. I will never give up on you. And then they get into trouble and I say, oh, well, sorry. Can't do anything for you. Something's wrong. There is a disconnect. And that's what James is attacking. And it seems to me, even though it is very repetitive, that he's saying over and over again, take care of the hopeless and the helpless. 
Take care of the hopeless and the helpless. Don't treat them with partiality. Take care of the hopeless and the helpless when they come into your church. There's a reason because they're just not getting it. And he wants them to get it. And so what I think James is saying is, listen, don't just be hearers, but also be doers. And yes, this is getting a little repetitive and it sounds like nagging, but you're not getting it. So my advice to the youth group, when mom and dad say, clean your room, clean your room. You want the stop, the nagging to stop? Just do it. Make sense? That's what James is saying. James is not saying you must do works to get saved. He's saying if you are a follower of Christ, those works will come. They are a natural expression of your faith. Dead faith does nothing. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If a man claims to have faith and has no deeds, can such faith save him? Slip down to verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Slip down to verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Or in another um, version, it's called barren. Verse 14. Can that faith save us? No. Verse 24, it says or reads, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. The idea here is quite simply that James is trying to tell them that if you do not act on what you believe, your faith is dead, barren, has no power to save you, and has no power to justify you or justify the reason that you can actually claim that you have faith. It's dead. It is an intellectual faith that you have. You might have all the right theology, all the right doctrine. You may be able to argue it with anybody in any way, shape, and form. But if you cannot live it out and express it, then it is dead and it is useless. And I don't know if this is his capstone to his argument, but in verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God. Good. You have the right theology. But you know what? Even the demons believe that and shudder. They do not believe in Jesus, but they believe that Jesus is the son of God. Because when he's getting ready to cast them out, what do they say? Jesus, son of God, leave us alone. Don't hurt us. Don't throw us into the abyss. They have pretty decent theology, but that does not mean that they are saved. The expression of a demonic faith is not a good expression because theirs is to seek and destroy. And so James is trying to say, listen, if you really, really believe You do something, and that something is you bless those who are hopeless and those who are helpless. On the flip side, a living faith does something. Let's look now at two examples that James uses. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Here's the idea. There's two different verses that James is actually using. In the first part. When he's talking about the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham, he's talking about Genesis chapter 22. 
And here's the story behind that. Isaac is the child of promise. And uh, as if you remember the story of Abraham, obviously he's waiting 25 years to have the son. He has a son finally. He's probably madly in love with his son. And uh, at 12 years of age, God says, okay, you need to give up your son. Now, how does Abraham respond to this? Abraham's response to this is the next day, immediately, he gets up and he gets ready to sacrifice his son just like God wanted him to sacrifice his son. And I will tell you, if God came to me and said, you know, Abraham had one kid, you have five, I'm going to let you pick. Which one do you want to get rid of? And my answer would be, no, I don't want to get rid of any of them. I love all five of them the same way. So, no, I don't want to get rid of any of them. Yet Abraham is a man of faith, and he gets ready to give up his one and only son, who is the heir of promise that God has already given him many 37 years ago. Here's why Abraham is a man of faith. I'm going to give you a definition of what I think faith is, and then try to explain that as we get that into Abraham. Faith is, a living faith is, man's response to God's initiative. Man's response to God's initiative. Here's what happened in the story of Abraham. God took the initiative and he met Abraham and he said, I will make you the father of nations. That is my promise. Abraham said, wait a minute. I don't have a living ear. How's that going to happen? I'm like 75 years old, man. Kids ain't coming from this body. And I'm looking over at my wife, as beautiful as she is. It's not happening there either. But God says, I'm going to tell you this. I am taking the initiative. One year from now, you will have this son that you've been waiting for. And one year later, he did. God took the initiative. Abraham responded in belief. That's the Genesis passage. We're uh, 15 passage, the second passage here. And that is then ultimately going to lead to Genesis 22. God takes the initiative and he says, listen, you need to sacrifice your son, Isaac. Abraham's response. Yes, Lord. Yes, I will do that. I do not understand why you're asking me to do this. But when you read Hebrews 11 and you see Abraham in the hall of faith, it says what? He believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. God took the initiative and said, hey, this child, Isaac, will be the heir of promise. And so when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain and literally got ready to stab him in the heart and sacrifice him to God, I'm not sure what he was thinking, but my guess is, if I understand Hebrews correctly, and what it means to have faith is that he knew somehow God would raise Isaac from the dead because all he knew is God took the initiative that this would be the heir of promise, and I'm going to do what God says, absolute, radically obedient to what God is saying because he believed. Faith is not having this great sense of, I believe something is going to happen. I can stand up here and say, I have faith that the Chicago White Sox will win the World Series this year. And Cub fans will laugh at me. But I've been laughing longer because you've been without a World Series for 100 plus years. You can believe all you want. It doesn't matter. See, we think faith is what? I'm going to boldly grab on to the name it and claim it throne of God. And I will say, God, promise you are God of gods. You are God of provision. You will do all these things. And I believe this church will be 1,000 people next year. And everyone will go, wow, dude, man, you have great faith. That's not faith. It's boldness, but it's not faith. 
Faith is not name it and claim it. This is what I want, and now, God, I will claim it because you love me and you are God of provision. It is name it and claim it when God says it is so. When God said, Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham named that because God said to name that, and he claimed it. So when he got up on the, on the mountain, based on God's initiative, his response was, I am going to willingly, in radical obedience, sacrifice my son now because I know what God said and he's a God who fulfills his promises and I know even if Isaac dies now somehow God will raise him from the dead and he will still be the heir of promise that is faith that is faith it's a faith that we need when we talk about forgiveness when God says listen that person that you struggle to love because they've done some horrific thing to you, you must get to a place, no matter how you get there, but that's where you're going, to forgive them. That is God's initiative. He has given us his son Jesus to show us how that actually happens. You get on a cross, you die to yourself because you love this person, you love these people, and you want to see them get into relationship with your father. God's initiative. What is the response? Jesus' response was, yes, not my will, but yours. And he did it. So when he says to us, listen, this is the place that you have to get by faith. Our faith is understanding God's initiative. And our response is, God, I will take as many steps as I need to, as hard and as difficult as it is to get to that place where I will do what you are asking me to do, even if it requires me to, in the words of Jesus, bless those who curse me and pray for those who are against me. Do you understand that? That is great faith. When God says this We respond and do what he asks us to do. That is why Abraham is a man of faith. Now, what James here is saying is this. In Genesis chapter 15, when God said, you will be the father of nations, that was God's initiative. And Abraham lived accordingly and continued to respond so that when it came to that place and he needed to give up Isaac, it was already there. Now, I'll be honest with you. I really think Abraham loved Isaac. And I know you're saying, duh, but it's not like you can flippantly just throw a switch and say, well, you know what? I'm just going to get rid of Tim today. That's it. In order to honor God, I'm just going to get rid of him. If any parent says that, there's a problem. Now, mind you, some parents do, right? And I'm not saying they're here. There are some parents that look at their kids and they say, I wish you were never born. You're the reason I married your father. I can't stand you. I can't stand him. I can't stand anything about this. There are parents who say that. I get that. But in a normal place, It is not normal. It is not natural. It's not flippant. Abraham wasn't going, I am so tired of telling this kid to clean his tent. I'm through. I've had it. No, what he's saying is, this is my son. And I imagine all the way there, it's a struggle. But he had great faith because God said something. And he was going to do it. And he trusted no matter what happened, in the end, God would do what he said. James is trying to tell us the same thing. Hey, listen, guys. There are a lot of people who are around you that are in great need. And to tell them, hey, get better. (coughs) It's going to be all right, man. We'll pray for you. Is not sufficient. It's dead. 
It's barren. It's fruitless. It's worthless. To say, I see your need and will do whatever I can to meet it is true faith. It is a living faith. That is the faith that James is calling the readers here to. It is the faith that he is calling us to. A living faith that does something. So when either we're ministering in the church or outside of the church, if we're not ministering at all, then we're really showing what our faith means to us. It means nothing. And I think that's why James keeps beating this over and over and over again. But he doesn't stop there because you know what? If you're like me, sometimes when you read biographies of great saints, I always feel worse. You know, you're supposed to feel better, right? It's supposed to be encouraging. Wow, if so-and-so did this. You know, if I've read like Hudson Taylor and uh, this guy prays and something happens just like that. And George Mueller, he prays and something like that. And I pray and nothing happens. I'm a little discouraged. I mean, I cannot match up to them. And so he's going to say, hey, listen, this moral standard of the Jewish faith, Abraham, be like him, right? No, man, there's no way. I give up. And I don't know if he's, I don't think he's doing this out of meanness, but he's just trying to show us something really special about God, not about the person he's going to talk about. But in verse 25, he says, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, mind you, I do not know why Rahab ended up in the prostitution. And I am not belittling or hammering her or anything about that. What I'm saying is you have this great moral upstanding Abraham as one example. And then James pulls out of scripture this woman who is not very moral in her upstanding ways or any ways whatsoever. And he says, here are two examples of great faith. Because this woman... Involved in a life of prostitution, somehow met God. And in the midst of meeting God, realized that God was the God. And trusted that even though she put her life on the line, when she told the soldiers and said, listen, I don't know where those spies are. Uh, I think they went that way. Maybe you should go get them that way. When they actually went that way, that took faith. And I don't really know what God said to her, but God must have said something because she said, I believe in him. And when y'all come back to Jericho, Please rescue us. And it's said that in history that ultimately she ended up marrying Joshua and was the, um, in, the, in the line of um, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and then ultimately in the line of Christ. That's scriptural. Wow. That's faith. To give up this lifestyle, to give up your people, to give up your home, to give up everything because God says so is faith. And we see that she really believed because of all of the things that she did in order to get to that place. God initiated something and she responded. A living faith is what Abraham had and a living faith is what Rahab had. Both of them did something. Did that earn them credit with God? No. Neither one of them got credit for what they did afterwards. But it was an evidence. It was an expression of faith. I really, honestly, truly believe in God. And I will do this. I will sacrifice my son. I will do this. I will give up everything I have in order to follow this God. That is what I will do. And that's what James is trying to say. He's trying to get them to see that life, a living faith, actually does something. 
You cannot sit in church Sunday after Sunday. You cannot go to small group or not go to small group and not see some expression of faith that does not meet the needs of other people. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's no faith at all. It's dead. It's barren. It's worthless. It's fruitless. It's useless. Living faith, true faith leads to action. He finishes it with this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Flip with me really quickly to Hosea chapter 6. And even if you don't turn there, that's fine too. <clears throat> because I think what Hosea is going to say is a good wrap-up to what James is saying. Because it's talking about mercy. It's talking about meeting the needs of people who are hopeless and helpless. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I... Desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Is your faith for real? How do you know? How do you know your faith is for real? Is it because you do the right things, you carry out the Christian things, the Christian laws, and you do all the duties and the disciplines and all the other stuff? That's not necessarily real faith. It is a part of it. But the true expression of real faith is when we Meet needs of people who are helpless and hopeless. When we get into their lives, when we get involved in their mess, whatever that mess is, and we walk with them. When we get involved in the lives of people who might even be our enemies and we pursue them. Why? Because that's what God did. Romans tells us we were his enemies. And yet he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy, extending mercy to those who are under his wrath and saying, I love you. I will pursue you. And I don't want you to think that God is some needy God up in heaven that says, really, I need friends. I want friends. I need friends. God does not need us in that manner. His desire is to express mercy to us that we might be drawn to him. And as we are drawn to him and meet him to express that mercy to those who are around us, the good people, the in-between people and the bad people. That's what James is saying. James is ultimately getting to us, getting us to a place where he will say, I know your faith is alive. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith with deeds and I will tell you yours is dead and mine is alive. Not because I am better than you, but because I am expressing what I believe and you are too, but what you're expressing is not faith. So my challenge to each and every one of us is this. Today, do you have a dead faith that believes all the right things and can say all the right things, but does nothing to alleviate the misery that the world we live in? Or do you have a living faith that does whatever it takes with whatever you have in every way, shape, and form to meet those needs? Which faith do you have? And then when you converse with James, know that however you live is expressing what you truly believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's your heart 
that we want to embrace. For your love and concern for the helpless, the hopeless, the poor, the needy, and even our enemies is the heart that we want. Father, I recognize in our world that there are a lot of things that we go through. Sometimes it's hard to meet the needs of other people when we ourselves are struggling and have needs as well. Father, as I reflect even now on what I've just said, I would pray that we would not leave here burdened to give more when we have nothing to give. Instead, I pray, Father, that my brothers and sisters who surround us would then actually surround us, come alongside of us, and from their excess give. So, Father, where there are people today who are hurting and struggling and might even feel condemned by a message that calls them to do more, Father, I'd ask that you would remove that and instead bring them to a place of rest in a community that seeks to give rest to those who are hurting. Father, may this church be a place of rest where our deeds are not our duty alone, but our desire as well, and first and foremost. Father, I would ask that you would give us wisdom, the wisdom that you give to those who ask, as James has already mentioned, to know what to do. Father, may we understand that our faith is great when we hear your word and we respond appropriately. May we be like an Abraham who is radical in his obedience to give up the most precious, precious person, his only child. Father, though that doesn't make sense to us and we know what you did in the end and why you did it, it still doesn't make sense. Yet Abraham was obedient. Father, may we be obedient like that as well. Those places where it's hard to forgive or hard to live for you, give us strength and courage. Meet us. Give us your heart. Give us your mind. May there be a sense that you are worthy to be loved and to be followed. Father, may we recognize our need for you. And Father, as we go out, may this week, and the weeks to follow, and the years to come, as opportunities come to express our faith, how much we really believe, may we respond with an obedience that is immediate and thankful. And Father, that we may struggle with that, we know that you will walk with us through whatever we go through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.